All right, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Seattle. It's great to <laughs> Chamber of Commerce Day for Seattle. I'm not sure why people choose to live there, uh, but nice to be here in the house together. Grateful for live stream. For those of you who are unable, maybe because of the weather, to join us this morning, we're uh, glad you've been able to join us through live stream. And at the same time, encourage you when you're able, when the weather permits, uh, when things are good for you to join us again in the sanctuary, uh, partly for your own benefit, because the experience, I would say, of worship and of fellowship and interaction is richer when we're physically together. Uh, not only for yourself, but for others you can encourage. So we uh, encourage you uh, when you have a chance, when it's the right time, when the weather permits to join us uh, in person. Uh, but we are glad you're here uh, nevertheless. This morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday we finished chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. This morning we move on into chapter 11. Interestingly, these last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, seem to all happen in one week. If you're paying attention in Mark's Gospel, if you're familiar with Mark's Gospel, which is really interesting that if Jesus who lived as a person, as a man, as a human being in flesh on earth for 30, 31, 32, maybe 33 years, that a full, that of that 16 chapters of Mark's gospel, the last six are committed to the last week of Jesus' life, at least as it appears. And this serves, among other things, to call our attention to the fact and the reality that the central event of Jesus' ministry, life, purpose, coming, mission, was his death on the cross for the sins of many, as Mark has already said and pointed to a number of times in his gospel, but even more so through his construction. Of course, this doesn't mean that these things necessarily had to have happened historically uh, in this way so that all the things that we read between now and the end of Mark's gospel only happened in a week, but Mark structures it that way so that we see the importance in all things of the resurrection and the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. So, uh, chapter 11 of Mark's gospel begins with Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The church has historically celebrated that on Palm Sunday, uh, given that week before Jesus' resurrection on Easter. Uh, we are not going to look at that passage at the beginning of chapter 11 in Mark's gospel, partly because this is not Palm Sunday, but largely because we've got a long way to go still in Mark before we get that, get to that point, and we're going to save that triumphal entry at the passage at the beginning of chapter 11 until later, instead focusing on the next passage in Mark's gospel that fits our purpose this morning. In the section of Mark's gospel before us this morning, verses 12 through 25 of chapter 11, is another of one of Mark's literary sandwiches. Maybe you remember some of those from the beginning or from the early parts of, of Mark's uh, gospel. The pieces of bread that make up that sandwich are the strange story in Jesus' strange interaction with a fig tree as he goes up to Jerusalem, and we'll read more about that later. But our focus this morning is going to be what's in the middle of that sandwich on the uh, in-between the fig tree interaction bracket. That'll be our focus. That's our intro. Let me pray. God, help us to be students of your word with our minds, but also with our hearts. Uh, with uh, our thinking, but also with our affections. 
we would ask that you help us not only to know, but also to become, to be shaped by your word, to uh, be absorbed in your truth and your grace. Uh, come to us, Holy Spirit, fill us, open our eyes, help us to see, hear, and taste all of your goodness. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so reading now from chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 15, listen closely, this is God's word. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, Jesus said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And what may stand out most to us in these verses about these verses is how out of character Jesus seems, how different Jesus is in this scene than maybe any other episode or scene in all of Mark's gospel. What a temper Jesus now seems to have. What's gotten into Jesus, all of a sudden he's blown a gasket. Jesus goes postal. Had he just woken up on the wrong side of the bed, which is what my dad used to say when we were grumpy or throwing things around in the morning, or had something just really touched a sensitive nerve for Jesus that he goes ballistic. What happened to the meek and mild Jesus that we've read about in the earlier parts of Mark that we're familiar with, that we know whom we love? What's happened to the flannel board Jesus who in the passage we read last week in Mark's gospel is sweetly placing children on his knee? What's going on? Many people from uh, Jews had come from all different parts of the world to Jerusalem and they regularly did for pilgrimages, for Passover, for feasts of various sorts. They had come to celebrate, they had come culturally, but really most of all, they had come so that they could come to the temple and worship. And what they needed, especially on high holy days, feast celebrations in the temple, was a dove or an animal to bring and to present as an offering, as a sacrifice, as a way to say to God, we are here, we worship you, we belong to you, we thank you, please forgive us sacrifice, kill this animal. And it was really impractical to carry doves with one for hundreds of miles or other animals. And so what people would do was they would travel without their offering, their sacrificial animals, get to Jerusalem and get to the temple and there very practically buy their animals there in Jerusalem, there in the temple courts, there even on site. And so there were these booths and tables and stations set up where people could purchase, where pilgrim or pilgrims could buy their animals. Of course, at highway robbery prices, where people were poached, where people were exploited, where people were taken advantage of, where the prices were too high, where the vendors had the travelers over the barrel, so to speak, because of their many miles of travel. 
And not only were vendors selling animals there at inflated prices, but they were also not taking foreign currency, or they were only doing so for an extreme premium. Therefore, in addition to animals being sold, there were other opportunists who had set up currency exchange tables and booths, again, further milking the tired travelers, the guests to Jerusalem, the pilgrims who had come to worship. And Jesus is absolutely livid. He was irate at these practices. The righteous wrath of God is being poured out through meek and mild Jesus. So tables began to fly, coins began to roll, animals are scattering everywhere, and Jesus was in the middle of it all, waving his arms, scaring off animals, and saying, get out of here. Get your stuff, get your animals, get your things, pick it up or don't pick it up. Get out of here, shoo, go. Be done with it. Of course, Jesus was not an anti-capitalist. He was not a communist. He was not against the law of supply and demand. Jesus was not against making money or anything like that, but he was deeply grieved by what the exploiters had made of his father's house. And Mark tells us that Jesus, always the rabbi in Mark's gospel, taught. He taught anyone there who in that moment would listen, beginning with a question. Is it not written? Is it not written in the scriptures? You people here in the temple certainly value the scriptures. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And that second quote comes from the prophet Isaiah, obviously denouncing the commercial, commercialization of the temple institution, the temple system, the temple process, the temple life, the temple culture. The people were responsible, who were responsible for what went on in the temple, the club, the inner circle, the Sanhedrin, including its courtyards, had allowed that sacred space for people to be taken advantage of, to be exploited, capitalizing on other people's weaknesses, on their lack of, on their need, and therefore oppression, tyranny, injustice. And so in and through Jesus, the wrath of God is being poured out. You have made it a den of robbers, bam! In contrast to the temple's original purpose and design. The temple, God's temple, Jesus said, now quoting Isaiah, was supposed to be a house of prayer, a place of prayer for communing with God, we're speaking with God, we're listening to God, for worshiping God, for being shaped by God's spirit in the furnace of his good presence. And Jesus could have done everything he did up to this point flipping the tables, scattering the money, scattering the animals, driving out the vendors, quoting Jeremiah and then quoting Isaiah, saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and left it at that, but there was more. Jesus said more. Jesus quoted more from Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer, my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Messiah was popularly expected. And again, we've got to deal with expectations coming into the Gospel of Mark. The, chap the Messiah was popularly expected to purge, 
to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, of aliens, of foreigners. Jesus' action, however, is exactly the reverse. He does not clear the temple of Gentiles, but rather he clears the temple for Gentiles. The chapter from which Jesus quotes in Isaiah chapter 56 speaks of the extension of God's salvation to people who formerly were excluded from it, foreigners, exiles, eunuchs, Gentiles. It includes the very people that it was, was thought the Messiah would exclude. Are you with me? And once again, just like back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, where Peter, who's the first one in response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? Finally, Peter answers, you are the Christ you are the Messiah, and you remember from our study of chapter 8 that Jesus sort of accepts that title and that role, but says, I am the Son of God, and therefore goes on to refer to himself not so much as Messiah, what they expected, but Messiah and Son of God, Son of Man, who is wholly different than what and who they expected. Messiah, Jesus revealed was not as they would expect. And so here Jesus was saying or said, you've been looking for, waiting for, hoping for, praying for a Messiah with a nationalistic agenda. One who would be just for Israel, just for God's chosen people, just for your people, just for you. But the message of the kingdom which is coming and which is near is one of radical inclusion and even global inclusion, a house of prayer for all nations. The Greek word there for nations is ethnos, which can be translated most easily ethnicities or races or peoples or tribes or nations, including Gentiles, including even, strangely, pagans. And you can imagine how unpopular such a notion must have been among the Jews living under Roman rule in Jerusalem, yearning for their own freedom. My father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And when one looks back, even over the Gospel of Mark, and we remember Jesus' travels, and we've looked at them over a map, we remember that Jesus began in a very Jewish area in Galilee among just Jewish people, but then begins to venture out and sort of comes into contact with and encounters and reaches out to the Syrophoenician woman and people in Tyre and people in Sidon, and then over on the other side, the other side, the Decapolis, where there were non-Jews, Gentiles, and the Decapolis again, and then the area of Perea across the river on his way down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to his cross. And now he brings that message and mission to what was certainly the most Jewish location. The most Jewish location or point on the face of the earth on the whole face of the earth, to their sacred temple, to their sacred space, to the temple, to their God, who was for them, the Jews. Oh, sure, up to that point, the temple complex did have an area on its outer ring that was for Jewish, for Gentile people, where Gentile people were included. On the very outer ring, the last courtyard, 
But those were terrible seats. They were the cheap seats. They were the nosebleed seats. They were the giveaway seats. They were like the parking lot. You needed x-ray vision to get an idea of what was going on in the temple from there. They were so far out. Moreover, there was a wall around between the courtyard, the temple where the Jews worshiped and this outer, outer, outer courtyard. And this wall went all around it. We read about it in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a three-foot high wall on which was posted in multiple languages, no trespassing Gentiles, or you will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, which meant and included being killed. Oh, sure, there's a courtyard for the Gentiles, but not a very welcoming not a very welcoming one. And Jesus declares, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's vision through Isaiah, though not through the Jews necessarily, God's vision in the latter part of his prophecy of Isaiah, and particularly chapter six, but in other chapters as well, was this inclusion of the Gentiles. Jesus' vision was just as big and maybe bigger than Isaiah's. And certainly Jesus' vision was uncomfortably big for the people of Jerusalem, the people of the temple, the people among whom Jesus' first followers came. And certainly Jesus' vision of his kingdom may be uncomfortably big for some in the church today. But quoting from Matthew, from Mark chapter 10, not so with us. May it not be so with us. May it not be so among us and in us and in our community and in our fellowship. May God grow our vision and understanding of the breadth and width and depth of his kingdom to the point that it's global. I think many people in the church today, maybe not so much this church, but in the American church in the Western church, in the church of the 21st century, there is this thinking that the church is for us, that God is for us, that we are Christians, that we are God's people. But what a myopic view of things that is. We are not God's people, but the Jews are God's people. And he has engrafted us, the Gentiles, and there is another Gentile kind of people in the world today. And it is those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. It is those who have embraced other ways of believing and seeing the world. And it is those people that God is eager and desires to include today. To such we are called. <clears throat> this is one of the challenges. I'm going to skate on thin ice for just a moment. This is one of the challenges of blending the Christian faith and the American flag or American nationalism, that we come to confuse the two and the two become one and so blended and enmeshed that we cannot distinguish between the two. God is not an American. Jesus is not American. America is not the promised land, but rather hopefully, prayerfully, a launching point and one of many that the gospel might go out, that those who haven't been included up to this point and aren't even considered part of those who can be included will be such was Jesus' vision, that his father's house would be called a house of prayer, of communion, of fellowship, of love for people of all nations, ethnicities, races, tribes, people. 
That is Jesus' vision. And that is what we get to be a part of. It's unique among churches that one might have among its values, advancing God's purposes globally. Because so many churches today seem to be myopic, maybe looking outside of their walls some of the time, but not often looking beyond their walls and our nation and our people most of the time. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus descended and how he was crucified, how he suffered even unto death on a cross. That Jesus might be exalted, that one day every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and around the earth and all over the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to, glor to the glory of God the Father. We were in on last Friday morning in our Romans Bible study, reading through the 15th chapter, making our way to the end. And Paul's sort of built this case all along, and then he uh, blurts it out periodically, writing to the Jewish people these words in the latter part of his letter to the Romans. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praise of your name. Again, quoting scripture, Paul says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And such is the message of Jesus and of Paul and ought to be of the church. And as such, we are called. We live in an interesting time and an interesting place where we can be missionaries to the ends of the earth in a variety of ways. Not only in opening these doors, our doors, Presbyterian doors, upper middle class modern doors to the nations because the nations have come to our doorstep in Silicon Valley. And we can only cross the street to reach the nations every one of us ought to be commissioned as a missionary to the rest of the world because all of us can be connecting with people from all over the world last spring during lent we raised forty-seven thousand dollars above and beyond our normal giving and our normal budget to send to india as another way that we can be a part of bringing the nations into the house of God for prayer. We got a video clip from uh, India this week. I'm gonna share a little, bit of us, a little bit of it with us right now. Here we go, I think. Pastor Shannon and First Presbyterian Church, I want to uh, say thank you so much for your prayer and for your great support. I want to also thank all the members of uh, the church for your generous support and because of your support we build this building uh, you can see uh, that this is wonderful uh, blessing that God has given to us uh, for all these kids and they all are staying here and uh, they are very happy a couple of our staffs are here uh, are you all happy yeah.
us and uh, they are very much thankful for these wonderful beds, wonderful mattresses and wonderful staffs that they are staying here and helping all these kids. These all kids, they go to St. John Internationals uh, for study. And sub, thank you, Bolo. Thank you. Yes. So this is hall, uh, meeting place, and you can see another room here. Sab log khush hai? Yes. Yes, very happy, okay. Uh, some teenagers, boys here. Yes. Khush hai? Yes. All are happy. Thank you so much for your prayer. Sab bolo thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. And you can see all these kids. Khush hai? Yes. Daat dikhao? Yes, they all are happy. Some little kids are here and they all are very happy because uh, uh, they love this place. They walk up every morning 5 p.m. and they pray for one hour. So uh, we are very much thankful. Sablo yes. Kuse? Yes. Yes. Very good. Yes. Another room you can see. So each room, uh, this is uh, the big room. They can, uh, like six uh, boys can. Uh, sleep together on separate beds. Mm -hmm. So yes, sab log khush hai? Yes. All are happy. Yes, yes, and uh, uh, yes, very good. Thank you uh, for your uh, generous support. Uh, so great to see uh, what our. Uh, extra giving, generous giving, sacrificial giving, casual giving, whatever kind of giving it was. But uh, just simply our giving is changing the lives of dozens and dozens of kids who are being, uh, as we talked about last week, invited to Jesus in a variety of ways through that home, through the uh, St. John International School that they get to attend as a part of that bigger ministry. So we can go across the street to invite people into our house, God's house of prayer. We can give in this way and in lots of ways. We can pray, as Gladys talked about. Today is uh, the first day of uh, these 15 days of prayer for uh, the Hindu world. We can pray, as Gladys said earlier in our time, uh, that they see the light of God in Jesus and are transformed and saved. These booklets are uh, in the lobby as you exit, and you're welcome to grab one if you prefer that to the emailed version. You can, as it just so happens, uh, today's our annual Quilts with a Mission event, and uh, a number of women have stitched and crocheted and quilted and done all kinds of things with the gifts that they have and the things they enjoy doing to benefit global missions, to benefit the expansion of God's house of prayer for all nations. And so you can shop and share and uh, give later on in Geneva Hall in that way. Today, after worship at 1215, we've got a special guest with us on campus uh, hosted by Paul Lindquist and a few others, Carol Ward. As he talked about last Sunday morning in worship, uh, Carol, who has spent upwards of 20 years in the dangerous region between northern Uganda and southern Sudan, where the gospel is bursting forth because of the word of God going out through people that we can help support in prayer and in other ways. I think there are five slots left for that luncheon. 
uh, as of midnight last night. And so if you'd like to uh, be a part of that at 1215 today, Paul, who's waving his hand there on the center aisle, would be glad to talk with you after worship. There are many ways, and today we just happen to intersect with several of them, but many ways that we can affirm Jesus' vision of his Father's house being a place of prayer for all nations, all peoples, all ethnicities. This is not our religion. This is not our faith. But it belongs to the God who loves the entire world. May we take advantage of the opportunities, the prompts, and the calls around us and in front of us, whether we ever go to the ends of the earth or not, to bring in this harvest that God has grown before us. May this be so. Let's pray. You continue, God, to surprise and expand and bless and love and include in maybe ways that we don't expect, certainly ways that Jesus' followers and the people of Jerusalem and the temple didn't first expect. You are adamant, you are righteous, you are upright, you are holy about these things because you're bursting forth in love and mercy for the lost and the least and the last. We ask God that you would use us as a church to be a part of following your lead with your help in your spirit by your grace to advance your purposes, not just in our church or in our neighborhood or in our homes, but globally. We believe that this small congregation of people that we are can impact the nations, the Muslim nations, the Hindu nations, the Buddhist nations, the nations that are without gods, the nations that have darkness and that have questions, that are lost, that are at war, that are in famine, that are in need. We ask that you would bring this about and that you would be glorified in all of this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.